Well, good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi. I'm joined by my son, John Mark, and we're coming to you from the studios of the Coming Home Network International. In this uh, episode of Deep in Scripture, we're picking up on uh, a passage we started last week, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 2 through 12. And there's just so much good stuff. And that, maybe that's the, uh, the underlying idea behind this Deep in Scripture program. We don't in any way um, <laughs> claim to be great scholars, uh, academics. I, I've never been that. I wish I was. I just love the Word of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, but what I've found over the years is that you can never read and study Scripture enough, mm-hmm. especially if you do it with a prayerful heart. There's just so much there. And as we began this study last week, um, we realized there's just so much more. So we wanted to pause and pick up this week. So we'll be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 6, 2 through 12. But again, John Mark, before I jump into it, did you have any opening words for our audience? Yeah, just two things in particular. Again, once again, always thank you for listening to this show. You know, the Coming Home Network is a network of converts to the Catholic Church, as well as people who are on the journey, uh, as well as many lifelong Catholics who are supporters and, and prayer partners in our work. And I want to tell you all about two neat opportunities coming up soon. Um, this, uh, let's see, this April, April 29th, uh, uh, yeah, 29th through the 2nd, uh, we're having our, our annual CH Network retreat in Columbus, Ohio. It's a great opportunity for converts to the church and journeyers to come together for a few days of prayer and worship and discussion about uh, this journey of continual conversion to Jesus Christ. So if you go to chnetwork.org uh, slash retreats, you can find the information about that. Uh, we also have uh, our first Deep in History pilgrimage coming up uh, this at the end of September. Uh, and that's—it'll uh, be hosted by uh, Dad— and uh, Ken Hensley, who's a colleague of ours, a Baptist pastor who became Catholic, as well as Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson. So you can find information about that uh, pilgrimage to Italy at chnetwork.org slash pilgrimages. All right. Thanks, John Mark. As I mentioned, we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 6, 2 through 12. And we began it last week. Let me read that section again, John Mark. And maybe uh, you didn't know I was going to do this to you, but I'm going to have you, after I read it, you summarize, if you will, where we left things off last week. Sure. Um, here's the passage. Again, Paul, prisoner, is writing to a young bishop who Paul himself brought by grace into the faith, trained and then assigned to be the bishop at Ephesus. And Paul, at the end of his letter, is writing, Teach and urge these duties. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching which accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit. He knows nothing. He has a morbid craving for controversy and for disputes about words which produce envy and dissension, slander, base suspicions, and wrangling among men who are depraved in mind and bereft of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. There is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and hurtful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evils. It is through this craving 
that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced their hearts with many pangs. But as for you, man of God, shun all this. Aim at righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Just such a, a wonderful passage. Um, so some of the things we talked about last week, I think in particular, uh, were you know this this craving uh, for controversy, for disputes about words, for these other things, that uh, any of these unchecked cravings for anything other than godliness, anything other than the Heavenly Father and His righteousness, leads down this spiral uh, in which the gospel is turned on its head. It's inverted so that the godliness, these these duties that are to be taught and urged, uh, as Paul says to Timothy, they become a, simply a means for personal gain, whatever form that might take. I mean, that might be money, as he'll go on to talk about, and we'll talk about today, but it may also be um, that, that person's desire for obsessing about uh, the esoteric controversy, watching the dumpster fires, as we, <laughs> we have so much in our modern-day media. Um, and so there, there's even even a small misstep where we take our eyes off uh, off Christ as as the center of our faith, as as the as the focus of all this. Uh, it it uh, it descends into this into this spiral away from from the truth. Excellent, John Mark. The when this is broadcast. While we're taping it, there are bishops gathered in Rome to discuss. Bishops from around the world are gathered to discuss a particular scandal in the church. And I believe that, with many, that the scandal we're all aware of may be a tip of an iceberg of a lot of things that have festered for many, many years or centuries in the church mm. alongside the great good that's in the church. You know, there's a, there's a both and. And when we ask the question, why do things like this happen? Why is it that seemingly good Christian men and women get drawn away mm. from the faith? And, and no longer, as we go to the last verse of this passage, no longer fight the good faith, fight of the faith. No longer take hold of the eternal life to which they were called when they made the good confession. What happens? And it usually isn't a decision to be contrary. Mm -hmm. It's little steps. Yeah. Little steps. In this case, it looks like way back in the first century, first generation in this con community of Christians led by Timothy, either there's a person that Paul and Timothy think of or else they're speaking generally about somebody in their midst who starts teaching differently, gets puffed up with conceit, gets blind to it, which leads to schism and mm -hmm 
arguing over words, the meaning of words, yeah. controversy. Yeah, it's so it's so easy uh, in in a, in time of scandal uh, or in looking at a passage like this again to to look at, and again we were talking about last week that there there's probably some figure causing this trouble that that Paul is referencing and, and talking about here. But it's easy to look out there at them and uh, first of all to assume that they started off on their path. They must have been aiming at some very great evil. I mean, they must be a really evil person to have started down this path. That's that's the first assumption we make, and the second assumption that builds on that is that well, then I'm not in that danger of that because I don't I'm, I don't have any these great evils that I that I uh, am aiming at. But all heresies, great or small in the church, are some small piece of the truth detached from the whole and blown up to the size of the whole. You know, and so the, again in this passage, someone who who starts off simply. It may be something about the faith. It may be some controversy. Some we went to the beginning of the chapter where he was giving more examples of that. It starts out maybe aiming at something good, but our craving for that, our our pride that gets mixed up in that thing, uh, that ends up being blown up, and and we also and we lose sight of the fact that that's even happening. In, 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 we in sometimes ourselves. we sometimes look at public figures that get caught doing such despicable things, and we may just assume these are despicable people, but we forget of an important fact in that anyone called by God to give their life to God, to do what Jesus said to the disciples, follow me, sell your boats, follow me, put, put away your nets, follow me. Anyone that does that awakens the spiritual battle. Yeah. And unless... We are, we shun all this, as Paul says in verse 11. Unless we guard our hearts and our minds, any one of us can fall. That's why that famous okay. saying, but for the grace of God, go I. Yeah. And that's why Paul says in verse 3 that we need to, we must build our faith on the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching with accords with godliness and what that means is sacred scripture, sacred tradition. The balance of that. It's not the Bible alone, nor is it just the teaching alone. We've got to make sure that we're grounded on both those things. Well, it, it bears probably, again, just a quote once, like we talked about last week, the verse from the beginning of the chapter where he says that the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. I mean, that's it. That's it. Every bishop, every priest, every cardinal, every pope, every layman, every laywoman, every religious, the aim of our charge is love Yeah. that issues from a pure heart, good conscience. You know, this is uh, sincere faith. This is, and we talked about it a couple weeks ago when that uh, Second Peter 1 passage where he says that to make every effort to build on faith virtue, and then on virtue, knowledge, and then knowledge leads to self-control and self-control to godliness and godliness yeah. of brother leads to love. Right. The trajectory is this agape love. Now in this... Go ahead, John Mark. <laughs> I was just going to say that the theological virtues are like this: these bookends to the, the mysterious both-and of our faith. Is it, is it 
is it God's grace? Is it free will? Well, God's grace precedes our action, and God's grace fulfills our action. You know, it's it's in faith, faith in God that we receive the Holy Spirit that proceeds into leading us into good action, and then that action is crowned in 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 the love that we proceed to. But it's God's grace that bookends that and permeates that process. Excellent. Now, winding up last week, mm-hmm. Paul points out an interesting conundrum behind this person or these kinds of people that get caught up in this spiral downward. And that is they get to imagining somehow that godliness is a means of gain. That it's a means of gain. Now, what he does say in verse 6, now let me, those of you looking at the whole passage, again I said, that the fir- there's a third of this that deals with this person, this general people that get caught up in this and the effects they have in the church. And then the second part is kind of getting deeper into really what's at the core of this problem. And that's in um, verses 9 and 10. And then 11 and 12, he turns the whole tables and he talks to Timothy about, no, it isn't just about those people, it's about you and me too. But in the middle of this is verses 6, 7, and 8, in which he is laying a basic virtuous ground, grounding for what he's going to say. Yeah. And he says in verse 6, 7, and 8, he says, yes, indeed, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Yeah. For he brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Now, John Margaret, it almost sounds like th- this is an interruption to the midst of everything he's talking about. You know, <laughs> right. That almost doesn't fit. But how is it, in fact, an essential core of the whole thing he's talking about? Yeah, well, again, any, any heresy takes a bit of the truth and makes it uh, as big as the whole. But we're still dealing with a piece of the truth. There is great gain in godliness. You know, all things work together for, the, for, the, for good— for those who love God, like that's throughout Scripture, um, but He's setting up the the, uh, the 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 qualification here, you know that that doesn't necessarily happen on our terms. God does have a great plans for us. He has m- much good that He wants to give us, but those are on His terms. Thy will be done, and if if we again from the beginning, even if in a small degree, if we proceed towards something other than than um, than Christ, and obedience to Christ as the center, um, that, then eventually we come around to the, the whole gospel being inverted, where it becomes simply a means uh, for our gain. Um, yet there is great gain in godliness. You know, all good comes from God, but we need to to, to surrender to God first. We need to pray for His will be will to be done, to be done. We need to ask for the good that He wants to give us, and not the other way around. Three things in this simple passage. There is great gain in godliness and contentment. Number one, we aren't the ones to define what gain is. There's the danger. There's the danger. Um, what is it that mo- this guy in the passage, he was puffed up with conceit, and that's what became the groundwork for how he understood the gain that he would get from being perceived as godly in the community. And what, what you see behind this is the modern 
health and wealth gospel. You know, when you interpret verses from the Psalms and the Old Testament that talk about if you're good, you get blessed, and if you're not good, you get cursed, and you just look at that outside of the of the church, the teaching of the tradition that we've received, it can, you can run with it and misunderstood. So what is the great gain that we hope for? By number two, well, what is godliness? How do we know what it means to be godly? Who defines it? What's the criteria? What's the motives to know that you're standing straight, as you talked about last John Mark last week, John Mark, when you when you talked about the quoted Chesterton, you know. Uh, and thirdly, the importance of contentment as one of the underlying values mm-hmm. that helps you understand what authentic gain is right. and authentic godliness. And there's probably some, you know, some additional words that we can attach to contentment to kind of flesh out what we mean there. I mean, we, we think about detachment as another word, you know, that's that's in a similar vein here. You know, we, uh, I'd say humility is a thing here too, in the sense that we, humility is about submitting to the truth of who I am and who God is. And so we have in this chapter this, this expression of the danger of being puffed up in conceit. In humility, we're able to submit to the truth. To the to the true teachings, to the sound words of Jesus Christ, to the the uh, the spirit-led teaching of His Church, but that takes humility. And so this contentment, there's there's a lot that goes into being able to have that true, authentic contentment, abandonment. You know, the the great uh, work by uh, De Cassad, abandonment to the divine providence, is a is a great spiritual work that would connect to that. Yeah. With with contentment, if we seek that contentment in the Lord. Then we'll we'll recognize in that godliness we'll recognize these great gifts that God does want to, want to give us. But when yeah. whenever I run across Paul talking about contentment, mm-hmm. I'm immediately reminded of his statement in Philippians four again when he's in jail. Maybe the same time he's in jail that he says in chapter four verse eleven of Philippians, "Not that I complain of want, for I have learned." in whatever state I am, to be content. Hmm. And what's powerful about that passage is he said, I have learned hmm. to be content. Yeah, It's a journey. Yeah, You know, it's something that we, we examine, we confront ourselves, we, we, we repent for impatience or lust or greed. Hmm. And the learning to be content is, a, as Paul also said in two verses before the one I just quoted, that yeah. what you have learned and received and heard from me, and the peace of God will be with you. It's a gift yeah. that, we, that we gain. Uh, I remember, John Mark, back when we used to milk a cow. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. as a dad, I was trying to get you boys <laughs> to be content Whenever every morning at six in the morning when we would go out in freezing weather to milk our cow. Right. And if you remember, one of the things I tried to say, and not because I was saying that I was perfect at it, because no, I was learning to be content too, (laughs) was that don't always be thinking about what you're going to do next. Right. So that you miss the beauty of the moment. Yeah. And that's contentment. 
Yeah, you know, I, I, I think last week I was talking about, you know, in this passage it has this this craving, this craving for something, even if that something is a good thing, if it's something other than God himself, then that craving uh, can can lead us down this spiral. And what that what a, what a, a craving is, if we, again, as I was saying last week, we cast it in terms of the cardinal virtues, it's a desire that needs to be tempered. But it's interesting that the virtue of temperance is often understood in only its negative sense in, in our modern world. We think of um, virtues that are, are sort of sub-virtues of, of temperance, like chastity or purity or uh, abstinence or the sobriety, things like that. And we tend to just think of what they are not. They mean we're not doing X, Y, and Z. But that's to miss uh, the real spiritual um, richness of that virtue, which is that we temper our desires for things other than God so that our heart is pure and open to, re- to, to be fully in love with what it should be in love. You know, so we temper our desires for, uh, for food and for drink and for anything that we might desire. We temper those desires so that our heart can be open to love and to be content. You know, we can't be content in, 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 in loving the great gift that we have in God's gift of himself if our heart is attached to many other things. And so, but even in, in as you were example, these physical circumstances, when you begin to temper yourself as in again, as as you also referenced, Paul writing from from prison. In temperance, we were able to find God in whatever circumstances we're in, whether that's a jail cell, whether that's a, golly, a cold winter morning going out to the barn to try to milk a cow. Yeah. If 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 uh, if our if our desires are tempered, our hearts able to be open to whatever great gain God is giving us in the circumstances that He's put us in. Yeah, learning to be content. Milking cow at five in the morning at five degrees below zero, <laughs> uh, way out in a barn with no heat, yeah, uh, it was something we had to learn. Yeah, but you know the idea of of getting us to think about right now at this moment, mm-hmm. being content where I am, not worried about yesterday or what's going to happen in five minutes or ten minutes, but mm-hmm. this moment, which is why. Remember, yeah. John Mark, we we started praying the Jesus prayer when we were milking the cow. <laughs> yeah. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy. You know, it, it, it was a way yes. of making that moment mm-hmm. a moment with God. Yeah. And that's what Paul talks about often. Mm-hmm. So he gives this concept in verse 6, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Well, where does he get that from? Well, in verses 7 and 8, he basically gives bullet points as a foundation to that, he says, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Question is, did, did Paul just kind of grab these out of the air somewhere? Mm-hmm. Or is he actually building the, the, the thesis, the axiom in verse mm-hmm. 6, upon what the people already know mm-hmm. and they share? Because... Verse 7 and 8 are basically building on the scriptures and the teachings of Christ. Yeah. Because the primary scriptures that the early church uh, held as authoritative mm-hmm. were the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. And so we have in Job 1. Then Job arose and rent his robe and shaved his head and fell upon the ground and worshiped. 
Yeah. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Yeah. And when you know the background of Job, he lost everything, <laughs> but he chose contentment. He chose to trust God. He, you know, everything was taken away. Well, it wasn't his to begin with. Right. We have this, we're not going to have time for it now, but there's the story about from Luke chapter 12, where this is our Lord giving a parable to somebody, and it talks about the story about a guy that whose crops were so great that he thought, well, I'm going to build more barns. I'm going to build and store it in. And Jesus says, well, that night he was called home and left everything yeah. behind. Everything we have, we leave behind, which is, again, why even on the Sermon on the Mount, we have Jesus saying, look at the birds. You know that God takes care of them. Don't worry about what you need to eat or about your clothing. Mm -hmm. God will provide. Seek first the kingdom of God. All of this, this is Paul building on the foundation of Scripture yeah. and the words of our Lord. Well, it's also significant, too, that, you know, in the in 7 and 8, he, he mentions food and clothing. The, we're talking about those things that you actually do need as a human being. You know, the, the basic human goods. Aquinas talks about this distinction between those things that by your nature you naturally need. You need food and drink and shelter, the, the basics. You don't need sports cars. You don't really need money. It's a secondary thing. It's a means to, to other goods, but it's not a good in itself. Nevertheless, you can crave those secondary goods and that's where a lot of the big problem comes, these secondary goods that you begin to crave. So he, he sets up this distinction right here in that, you know, we're, we're our Heavenly Father will take care of us in those things that he is, by our nature, um, oriented to us towards. Um, but we're to be content. We're to be, we're to be trusting in the Holy Spirit. I wrote about this in my book, Life from Our Land, and maybe I encourage you to go to the website and check out that book uh, published yeah. by Ignatius Press. I talk about that because... Those of us that are approaching retirement and we try, oh, man, am I going to have enough to live on? And when we try and paint the picture, how much do you need to live on? Yeah. And we make the list and we look at our lifestyle and we approach it from that angle. It's like, what's enough for me to live in the lifestyle to which our culture says I need to become accustomed but if you look at it from the other angle, the other side, I'll say, no, wait a second. What do I really need? Right. Clothing, food, water, shelter, a church. <laughs> okay. Now what? Everything else is an add-on. Yeah. You know, and, and so you look at it, and that's what he's saying. Here he's down to the bare bones, food <laughs> and clothing with these we shall be content. So he's really kind of cutting us down to the bottom, and then you build up from there and really ask yourself, what is it that might take my focus away from the godliness to which I'm called yeah. to live? And then so in this passage, there's this, this, these people or this person causing a problem, and They've gotten to the point where they think their godliness is a means of gain for the wrong stuff. What wrong stuff? Well, in 9 through 10, he, he hits it straight on. Mm -hmm. This is where they've been focusing. 
their godliness. And he says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and hurtful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced their hearts with many pains. Mm. Now, John Mark, there are literally hundreds of verses in the Old and New Testament that warn against the dangers of being and wanting to be rich. Mm-hmm. They don't say that being rich in itself is an evil. Mm-hmm. When we go to confession, we don't have to confess that we're rich. Mm-hmm. But, what is, we're not, but, but what is the problem? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. not a confession that, that I have to make anyway. But, uh, but, but, but what's the danger? Mm-hmm. That's in it connects with, which, with what's said earlier in verse three about being puffed up with conceit and knowing nothing, and yeah. it's connected with one can be blind to how being and wanting to be rich. Mm-hmm. is the start of the spiral downward. Yeah. And again, I think it's so significant that at the, the first part of the first part of the second part here, the first part of this second third of the passage we're looking at, Paul t- Paul uh, talks if we have food and clothing, so the basics, the basic human goods, you know our heavenly Father knows we need these basic things. So we're to be content with with those basic needs. But then in the second part, he, he gets into this, the, the, for the love of money is the root of all evils. And again, that's a, it's a popular quote. We hear it hither and yon in many different contexts. Um, again, what I think is interesting in the context of this packet passage, I, I think we can, we can tell here that, it, that in some sense, this is not specifically about money, but, but what is money? So money is this secondary thing that's not good in itself, but it's a means of power. It's a means of, of enacting your will beyond your needs. It's, um, and so in that sense, it connects to a much wider danger that human humans have. I always think back to Genesis in the context of this, in the sense that the original temptation, we think of in Genesis, in the garden, Adam and Eve have all that they need in the human sense. They have food and clothing, and shelter. they don't need clothing, but they have all that they need as human beings. God is, is generous to them. They have all they need. You know, telling them not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not taking away something that they need. He has given, he's fulfilled their needs perfectly. But the original temptation is you need something more, something more than what God's given you. And there's this temptation from, from, from the devil to desire to be like God, this desire for power, this desire to, to go beyond our needs, beyond our call. So he, this, he, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, he, he draws two extremes here, if you will. There's the one yeah. where it's just food and clothing, and that's what you got. And you, you begin by being content there. Mm-hmm. The other extreme is wanting to be rich. Yeah. In other words, so if you're content with this, you, you can get more mm-hmm. as God blesses. But it's the contentment that will help you understand the value and the need of these other things. So that if they're taken away, 
Right. Then you're like Job. You're fine. Mm. I'm, yeah. I'm fine. Or like Paul, I've learned to be content, even in prison, mm. when all I got is, you know, he's got a chain on his leg, right. you know, and, but the danger of wanting to be rich, making that your motive, your mm -hmm. goal in life, yeah, can open you up to temptation. It's not even saying that that desire in itself is an evil, mm -hmm. but that it is a snare. Yeah. And he just, you know, so it, it's that, it's a, it's a, it's a scary thing. And, and again, this, it's the snare that, as we said, you know, back in the beginning, Paul uses this, this hyperbolic language back in verse three, you know, this, this person is puffed up with conceit. He knows nothing. This snare is such that as we, as we crave um, money, we crave riches, we crave power, that it, it inverts the whole gospel such that we, in the end, we imagine that godliness, we imagine that the gospel itself is, is simply a means of gain, as a means of making ourselves more powerful, making ourselves comfortable, making ourselves rich, versus, no, 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 it's in godliness, it's in contentment with what God gives us that not only our needs are met, but we're saved. And he describes that, that spiral downward desire for rich, being rich, opens the door for temptation, which leads to the snare, get caught in it, which leads to many senseless and hurtful, more desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. So you have this journey down. And it's through this craving, Paul says, that this journey down that pulls people away from the faith. Mm -hmm. And they're gone into apostasy, schism, taking people with them. And it's interesting, in the end of verse 10, he has this phrase, and pierced their hearts with many pangs. Yeah. What's fascinating about that, that the Greek word that's used, that's translated, pierce their hearts, is a rare word. It's only one time used in the New Testament here. Hmm. Being pierced through, um, impaled, hmm. but it's impaling oneself. Yeah. So in other words, we're doing this to ourselves. That's the process. Yeah. We're doing it to ourselves with many pains. It reminds me of that that quote. It's not quite on the same theme, but you know, the coward dies a thousand deaths, the brave man only once. And I have no idea where that comes from. <laughs> but you know, if if your one desire, if the one central love of your heart is our Lord Jesus Christ, you're you'll still die. You know, that is our human lot, but you will die and you will be raised in him. But the person who gives their heart to all these other things, it constantly dies a, a thousand futile, painful deaths that that in the end give them nothing. I love that, that verse in uh, in 1 John where it, it reminds us that, um, and now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Yeah. To be able to stand before him without embarrassment. You know, and that's what Paul is warning about. And one of the things that will pull us away, and we live in a culture in a soup 
where most of us are so rich already, mm. we're blind to the ways that we've been caught in the snare, that we've been sucked into senseless and hurtful desires. Hey, we see scandals mm-hmm. in the church of, yeah. of men and women who, in you know, mea culpa, that mm-hmm. we're blind to it. Lord, help us. Yeah. And we've only done it to ourselves, impaled ourselves with these things. And the bottom line is that riches do not deliver mm-hmm. what they promise. Yeah. So seek to be content in in little and less. Seek mm-hmm. first the kingdom, not all this other stuff. Well, Paul then draws this section to a close because he brings it full, full circle. He's been yeah. encouraging Timothy to teach and urge these things. But John Mark, why don't you go ahead and read verse 11 and 12 because he brings it full circle around to his young novice. Right, and you set it up perfectly. But as for you, man of God, shun all this. Aim at righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You know, behind these passages is probably things that Paul said over and over and over again every time he preached, that he left with the people at Philippi and Corinth and Galatia and Ephesus and Colossae and all the different places he, you know, over and over as he preached and preached and preached. And so in his letters, he would build on it because we hear in that list of things, aim at righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfast, gentleness. Those are the kinds of virtues, John Mark, that he's over and over telling people that there's this partnership. On the one hand, they are the gifts and fruit of being changed by Jesus through the indwelling of the Spirit, but on the other hand, you've got to aim at them. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's That's a your small hand. contribution is your fiat, like like Mary, be it done unto me. You know, your your small yes to God is aiming at that which He aims you, and then He 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 moves you, He gives you that that power, but you still have to say yes and and take aim. And again, as you pointed out, John Mark, there back at the beginning of the letter where Paul says to Timothy, begins the letter, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. But what's a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith? Well, okay, you aim at righteousness. Hmm. You aim at godliness. You aim at faith. Aim at love, steadfastness, gentleness. Now, let me ask you this, John Mark. What is significant about the idea of aiming at these things? Well, sin means to miss the mark. Uh, and I, I think we used the analogy earlier that this passage is a lot about you know being one, one degree off the mark, aiming at anything other than Christ himself. Yeah. Takes us far away from the target in the end. In, in the in the mass, we say something: mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. Mm-hmm. 
In other words, we could we could give up to begin with. I'm unworthy of this. I've failed this. He says, aim at it. Mm-hmm. Pull back. Aim at it. This is your trajectory. This is to be your trajectory. Paul says in Philippians 3, hey, I'm not perfect yet. Yeah. But forgetting what lies behind, I press mm-hmm. onward to the upward right. call of Christ Jesus. Yeah. Aim. Yeah. Aim. Mm-hmm. Does that uh, somehow, this is Paul talking to Timothy, does this somehow help you as a father with what you're supposed to do with Dominic? <laughs> oh, in, in many little ways, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what you as a father to do, is to help your son, your daughters, catch on the idea they are to aim in this direction. Now, the beauty of that is it's not just mm-hmm. them. They're aided yeah. by grace. Yeah. Because grace, the fruits of the Spirit, empower this through their baptism and confirmation. Dominic's getting ready right. to do what? First communion? Everybody said. Yeah. You know, this is this is coming up. You know, the grace yeah. is there. But we got to remember to aim. Mm-hmm. Now, John Mark, what is really significant about verse 12 then? Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Well, it... it supposes faith, but it tells you to do something about it. You have to take hold. You have to fight the good fight. It's not enough just to believe, but with the Holy Spirit, in the Spirit, you have to fight and take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. you, you got to be engaged in it. Yeah. Fight the good fight, in my mind, means it isn't a one-time thing. Right. It's a journey. It's a lifelong mm-hmm. bringing back Again, you use the example of if your trajectory is a little bit off in the beginning, it's way off. Well, before you were born, when I was a young man, I was always watching TV when they did the Apollo flights to the moon. Mm-hmm. And I remember that the part of that was you know, they're always checking their trajectory, and there were these little rockets on the side of the thing yeah. that would adjust them, bring them back. Because if they're off by an inch at Cape Canaveral, they're off by yeah. 16 bazillion miles. They'll, <laughs> you know, They won't even get close to the moon. So you got the little corrections. Yeah. I guess this, you know, I, now I, as I'm thinking about it more, yeah, as one of the very first ways that we aim and we help our children to aim is precisely by baptism because it's what the Holy Spirit's doing in us. It's, it's, it's always first the action of God and the Holy Spirit. So even in presenting our children for baptism, introducing them through the power of God into the church, we're, we're aiming them before they even have reached the age of reason. We've set them on that path. We've, we've, given them to the Holy Spirit. Now, at some point, they still need to take hold themselves. But as parents, we're, we're so so often just bringing them back, putting them on that path, aiming them, you know, and then giving them the opportunity to eventually take hold themselves. One last thought, which when he says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, so you envision Timothy professing, maybe before the hands were laid on him and he was ordained a bishop, but there's, he made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So the word good, so in other words, he met, he, he did yeah. it pretty slick, you know, he did it fine, <laughs> you know, he, he was, so, but, but here's the point here, yeah. is that the profession of faith does not guarantee eternal life. Mm. And I'm pulling our attention back to what Paul says in Romans chapter 10 when he says um, in 
verse 9, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For man believes in his heart and so is justified, and he confesses with his lips and so is saved. The scripture says no one who believes in him will be put to shame. And I remember taking those verses to mean, hey, if you believe in your heart that God raised from the dead and you confess with your lips, you're saved. Mm-hmm. And that's the foundation for the once saved, always saved Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. But what Paul is saying here is that you made that good confession. Right. You said it. Jesus mm-hmm. is my Lord and Savior. You committed your life to him. You said the creed. You, every Sunday you say the creed. But you have to take hold of that. Fight the good faith. Live it out. Aim for holiness. Mm-hmm. Be, be aware the danger of being puffed up with conceit. Mm-hmm. I think about people who are, are received into the church at Easter, then they're puffed up with conceit. They think they never need to study their faith again. Yeah. Whoa. No, you fight the good fight. You take hold of it. Yeah, you know, another thing that, that just comes to my mind here, again, he ends this passage, and he's talking to a bishop. But as for you, O man of God, shun all this and aim at righteousness, etc. Again, what we've talked about throughout this passage is that 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 step, that first step down the descent into all the evils that Paul talks about, that that can start even with, I would say, as a as a person in ministry, a person in the hierarchy, a person in the priesthood, even in putting their project of being a priest and and doing your duties and doing your ministry, even if you put that before taking hold of that eternal life, that your relationship with God, your holiness, your obedience to God, that's still got to be that primary aim. Because you said if you set a project ahead of that, then that's this one step down this spiral of being puffed up and conceited, and in, in the end, making the whole gospel uh, a, a farce, simply a simply a means for your own gain. That has to always be first. Even he's talking to a bishop. Even you, bishop. Yeah, yeah. The danger of presumption is that it can subtly lead to becoming puffed up with conceit. And that's the beginning of our text. It leads mm-hmm. to a bunch of stuff. A person can say, I, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior back at a Bible camp 50 years ago. I've arrived. Mm-hmm. The danger of presuming on that and not growing in grace. Or someone saying, I was baptized as a baby. Mm-hmm. I've arrived. Mm-hmm. I was confirmed. Yeah. I've arrived. Yeah. Or the danger of a man being ordained to the priesthood mm-hmm. And assuming on that invisible mm-hmm. character, that new mm-hmm. sacramental character that received that, well, I've arrived. Yeah. I'm higher than others. Or even on the on the visible side, I've raised a lot of money for the church. I've built a lot of good things. I've run a lot of good programs. But in your heart, you know. Yeah. As Paul says to Timothy, man of God, shun all this. Aim for righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Mm-hmm. Mea culpa. Yeah, no, maxima culpa. Lord help us. <laughs> Those of you listening, I hope you enjoyed this discussion on Deep in Scripture. We'd love for you to connect with us. Uh, thanks. I hope you join us again. John Mark, any closing thoughts? 
yeah, again, just deepinscripture.com to uh, see the archive of this show and to learn more about the Coming Home Network. And again, we, w- we welcome questions, comments, thoughts, um, info. You can send an email to info at chnetwork.org. Thanks, John Mark. And thank you all for joining us today on Deep in Scripture. God bless. Look forward to being with you again next week. Deep in Scripture is a production of the Coming Home Network International. To hear more episodes, view our full archive of written and video conversion stories, participate in our online community forum, and more, visit chnetwork.org. You're also invited to explore free membership in the Coming Home Network and receive support on your own Catholic journey. Again, visit chnetwork.org for more information.